Hi everyone, Siobhan Chapman here and welcome to the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Today we are joined by Melinda Hightower for a conversation focused around art and social justice. Melinda, welcome. I'll pass it over to you. Welcome to the future of wealth, the power of cultural capital, where we explore invested and impactful journeys across the arts, philanthropy, and inclusive growth. I'm your host, Mel Hightower, head of UBS's Multicultural Investor Segment, and joining me today is social justice advocate and art influencer, Paul David Henderson. Thanks so much for joining the podcast, Paul. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. These are all some of my favorite topics, so I can't wait to dive in. So why don't we go ahead and do that? Let's talk about your background and hear your take on the biggest challenges and opportunities in the fight for social justice. Let's first start out with your chosen profession, the law, which we share. So what were your motivations for becoming a lawyer? You know what is, what's interesting to me is um, the law for me, as even as a child, I've always felt like I wanted to know why things happen to my community rather than for my community. Uh, and I grew up in some, you know, some challenging circumstances here in San Francisco. But to me, the key to unlocking and understanding things was education. So I poured into my education to really try and understand how things work and how things operated. And for me, uh, as I got, went through the school system and went to college, law school seemed to be the key to unlocking a deeper understanding of how things really worked behind the scenes, how the laws worked, how they were interpreted, how they were applied from a governmental perspective or municipality expectation or from a justice perspective. That's how I ended up going to law school. And every day there was a new opening for me of like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that's why they made a rule like that. I had no idea this is how the laws would be interpreted against or for specific individuals or communities. And that's how I ended up following this career path of going into law in the first place. And I've got to say, it's been really rewarding being able to both understand and be trained in communication and research. And that's how I got here. Great. And that focus on understanding why things were happening, the broader infrastructure, it really aligns with your chosen career of government service, right? You served as the chief administration and prosecutor for the previous district attorney of San Francisco and our current vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. Tell me about your experience in that role and how it helped you interpret the complexities of our criminal justice system. It actually changed a lot for me. Uh, I really just was going to be a lawyer and was happy with my cases and trying to affect change individually with my caseload. Uh, and one of the things that uh, Kamala Harris did uh, when she forced me into management and forced me to take on new roles uh, was to look bigger and beyond myself into the impact that an individual and an agency can have on community. And as much as I fought it, I turned down the role three times before she made me uh, take a more senior role and an engagement uh, to do more work. And it really, it changed my whole career, obviously, but it also changed how I saw the impact that 
an individual and an agency can have in terms of advocacy and being able to lean in and have a broader seat at the table about how decisions are being made, specifically decisions that have an impact on disenfranchised communities. And let's dig a little deeper, Paul, because what strikes me is that it's so rare to have an opportunity to serve in the community where you grew up, your parents grew up, your grandparents grew up, because you are a fourth-generation San Franciscan. And that kind of representation is rare and critical to, to really driving change in any industry. So I'd love to understand, you said that, you know, that role really changed the trajectory of your career and ultimately changed your life. What are some of those profound events, moments, or opportunities that really helped shape your career? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you, you laid the perfect foundation for it, for being in San Francisco. San Francisco has the widest economic and race disparity uh, out of any city in the United States. And so even though it's a successful and a big city, you have to look at that definition with the lens of race and the implications of race in a city like San Francisco, because I think it presents some challenges that aren't unique here but are reflective of a lot of the cities that uh, are here in the U.S. And for me, what that meant was growing up from in a culturally rich environment uh, that was not connected to wealth. And that experience, especially in the criminal justice system, was really impactful to me. One of the things that really stands out to me was uh, going away to school, getting an education, coming back, and this was really the job that I wanted to do, to be practicing as a lawyer, uh, and getting ready for that seemed to me really important, to come back to San Francisco and have an influence on cases that affected not just people I know, but the community that I was familiar with in ways that I thought would be powerful was something that I took very seriously. And I remember how much work I poured into getting ready to do that job really well and set an example for others. On the first day, and this is how most prosecution works in DA's office, you go right to court. And I had prepared all of my cases ahead of time to get ready. So I knew everything about every single case that was on the docket that day and was prepared to argue bail, make sentencing suggestions, negotiate cases, set cases for further hearings, all of that. Uh, and when I came into the courtroom uh, that first day, uh, the judge stopped me and told me, he stopped the court and said, oh, excuse me, sir, uh, you can't sit there. You have to wait for your lawyer to come in to represent you. And then he leaned forward and was like, and by the way, you're sitting where the prosecution and when they come in, they're going to be very upset with you, and you don't want that to affect your case. And it was one of those changing moments for me for my whole career. Uh, I didn't feel a sense of shame in that moment. I felt a sense of determination and focus about we need to change this experience. And certainly the judge, when he found out that I was the prosecutor, that I was not a criminal, that I was there as a lawyer in his case, what it did, my takeaway from that was to make sure that every day that I show up, I need to work that much harder to make sure that the next person that comes into this room that follows behind me 
that may look like me that looks like my community, there's not going to be that presumption because of how I performed, how I showed up, and the kind of job that I did while I was there. And, and I will say, leaning in to myself, leaning in to my career, also absolutely changed the outcome of what I've been able to do, not just as a lawyer, not just as a prosecutor, uh, but as an individual that's committed to addressing some of the intransigent and subjective problems that are mirrored in a lot of other cities with disenfranchised communities. Really, what a pivotal moment, probably not just for you, but for that judge as well, because I'm sure you appeared in front of that same judge multiple times throughout your career. For two years. <laughs> for two more years, I was in front of him every day. Yeah, it it was. It was right. But that was his shame, not mine. That's- Tell me about an initiative that you pursued or an achievement that you have of which you are most proud from your time in government service. Wow. I, I think I'm most proud of the many programs I started that were alternative programs in the criminal justice system. I mean, one of the things that I learned very early on, and this is one of the takeaways uh, from my experience of working closely with Kamala Harris, uh, she actually wrote a book on the outline of this, of being smart on crime. There's no tough on crime and soft on crime. It's trying to figure out what the nuances are. Things are not black and white. Things are nuanced and gray. And some of the things that I'm most proud of are the programs that I initiated throughout the justice system to address problems that were not going to be solved with incarceration. And so, like, the drug courts that we had and the domestic violence courts and the gun courts and the transitional age youth programs, all of these, including things like the internship programs to give young people an opportunity to understand how the justice system works and to play roles in decision-making about those things, I think have all been really important. And just as important as holding people accountable, we have to interpret what accountable looks like and how accountability gets defined. And I think that's everyone's responsibility, more so with the folks that are at the table making decisions, and that that's the stuff that I'm most proud of, that where I've been able to craft decisions that have impacted not just lives, but entire communities that have improved people's experiences for how they get about in life. And those experiences have been in communities that have been connected to me or that I feel connected to. And I think that's really important. If for no other reason, then it sets a model of what can be done for the future. Wonderful. And that commitment that you have, that bedrock commitment to shaping communities and to social justice, it, it isn't just limited to your career. You also have a history of it in your community service as well. You specifically, what I'd love to talk about is your role on the board of Warner Music Group, Blavatnik Family Foundation, Social Justice Fund. And they recently announced a partnership with Janelle Monet's Fund from the Future to create opportunities for under-resourced uh, girls and non-binary youth of color in the music, arts, and education. I'd love to hear more about the work that you do as a part of that board. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited about that board. I'm, I'm really deeply committed not just to public service, but to community service as well. And I think it's really important that how we spend 
and elect to spend our time is a reflection of our values. And so this is one of the boards that I feel pretty passionate about uh, because of the good work that comes out of it. I mean, those dollars that it's a hundred million dollar uh, grant goes to fund some really powerful uh, and important work that's taken place, not just in the United States, but throughout the world, uh, but specifically here uh, in the United States, having that social justice focus, I think is really impactful and one of the reasons that I'm on this board, uh, because I believe so much in trying to affect change that's going to be positive. Uh, with the Janelle Monet Fund, uh, the Fundum, the Future program is one that's specifically focused on opportunities for under-resourced girls and non-binary youth of color in music. And here's what I think is really important about that, and it's similar to other programs and agencies that we funded, uh, is being very intentional to address race. And I think that that's what's missing in a lot of the approaches in community service, is that we want to affect race, but we're afraid to talk about race. Uh, and so the agencies that are intentional about creating opportunities, uh, addressing and building out programming that is intentional to address race and focused on disenfranchised communities, I think that's the focus and the solution to moving forward in the future. It's really difficult, and I, I say this often, that you can't create a success that you can't define. And so being intentional about articulating what success can look like for audiences can be outcome determinative for communities that don't see those pathways or aren't presented with the same opportunities for whatever reason. Even when they're just financial, it still makes a difference. And when we have programs where we have artists and, you know, Warner Music Group works with a lot of artists that come from real communities that are tied to real objectives and goals and connecting those same artists to these goals, especially when they're elevated with social justice goals that are goals that can be shared, I think can be really impactful. And this is one of the agencies that I think has been impactful and that we expect to be impactful, like so many others on the board that I sit on. It's just, it's great. And, the, you know, obviously the music is good and I love all of the Warner artists, but I really love that it's not just the entertainment. Behind the entertainment and behind the corporation is a movement that is designed to address specifically social justice and elevate on the pillars of both education and culture ways to speak to disenfranchised communities to address a level or build a level of parity that I think is important. That's why I sit on the board. Thank you. And I think what's interesting that you raised, an interesting point you raised there is the intersection between the arts and social justice and how the arts can be really um, foundation for social change. And I'd like to take that on an even more personal level. And your Instagram account, for instance, showcases your incredible art collection. Can you talk more about your passion for the arts? and how it intersects with your work in social justice and how you view art as being a tool for promoting social change? Oh, my gosh, yes. I get really excited talking about the art <laughs> stuff uh, because I really love art, uh, and I really love collecting, uh, and it's almost accidental because I never even knew that I was a collector or considered myself a collector. I just 
I, I like to have pieces around me and my art collection, you know, of hyper visibility feels like a love letter to my past, present, and my future self. And so having these pieces around me feels a kind of way to me. And I, I really do. I love it. I, I just think that as I focus on the collecting more and I focus on the pieces, not just that I've been able to acquire for myself, because I, I'm really intentional about trying to share the collection as broadly as I can with as many people as I can and talking about it and gushing about not just the artist, but the work itself and what it means to me. I really believe that collecting black art or being a black collector in and of itself is an act of resistance. I work in media, I work in television, and so many of the images that we see through media and television are either negative or lacking when they are addressing communities of color. And the focus is on what communities of color don't have or what they need or how they're diminished in some way. Or they're just completely negative. And to me, I want to come home and I want to be surrounded with images that are reflective of my sense of how I see not just myself, but my own community, of the beauty that I see when I walk down the street, of the inherent justice that's possible when I look at images that reflect my skin tone or reflect values that I'm concerned with. And that to me is a, it's an amazing opportunity that anyone can do. Anyone can start and anyone can enjoy. And if, if people pay attention, they'll notice and see whenever I'm on television, I'm always rotating in the background what piece of work I've got for people to talk about. And then I tweet about it and here's the artist and here's the work and here's what it means to me. And it's my small way of resistance, of putting out messages, of putting out communications about things that I find of value. And, you know, six to ten million people may see and pay attention. It may help my room raider rating uh, that I have a beautiful great heart that I want people to see. But it also helps the artist, too, to, to know that people are collecting their work, not for it to go in a closet somewhere or to be in a warehouse but to actually be seen and addressed and talked about and discussed and complementary to a beautiful home or a beautiful life that's being presented on television or talked about uh, in a certain kind of way. I guess I feel very strongly about my art collection, and I feel like everyone else needs to join me, not just in appreciating the artists that I've managed to collect, but into creating their own curated experience with art and about art for themselves and being intentional about it. But it just takes having those conversations and making it accessible in ways that I think don't come naturally, especially for disenfranchised communities. There's so many blocks and restrictions and hindrances associated for communities about having access to art and having access to artists that are artificial. But you only reduce or remove those barriers by having conversations and exposure and education about them. And so, uh, honestly, it's why podcasts like this are so important, because you can't fix what you don't talk about, and you can't talk about what you don't know. And UBS being forward-thinking to have conversations like this makes a difference. The conversation itself changes experiences. Thank you so much, Paul. And one last question. Um, 
how would you advise someone to get started? What was your journey like starting your own collection? If you could talk briefly about that. Yeah, you know, I've I've always loved art and been attracted to the interpretation and reflection from others about how they see things. It just never stuck with me and didn't mean much because I never saw things or I saw very few things that reflected me or reflected my cousins, my aunts, my families, uh, the people that I grew up with. You know, when I went to go look at art, all I saw were posters and all I saw were things that had images from people of color that were just people playing basket sports or uh, playing jazz music. And I'm not diminishing those interpretations of African-Americans, but the majority of them weren't even produced by the community that they were designed to reflect. And that, that's a real problem. You know, the majority of collections and most major museums are 87% of their collections are from uh, white men. And what that means is when you come to a museum and you have to go up to the third floor around the corner next to the elevator to see an image of you, uh, and then that image is a, of a little slave boy because <laughs> that's created by a white artist, you know, that's frustrating that we have so much more as a community, uh, and there's so many more ways to interpret who we are, and that's the job of a museum. That's quite frankly the job of a gallery as well, and also the job of folks that collect. I think if you don't have a diverse collection, then you are intentionally exclusive of the opportunity to have it be meaningful to a broader audience. Most museums have collections that less than 2% of their collection are featured black artists. That's that's a shame. But it starts with understanding what the problem is. And it starts with us being able to articulate and point out the opportunity that there is in art for you to have a diverse collection, for you to have a diverse showing, for artists to all be included under the tent so that we can be seen and appreciated in ways that heretofore we just we have not done as good a job as I think are possible. Paul, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> that is an incredible stopping point for us. And I think a great call to action for everyone who's listening to be intentional about the representation and to start on levels big and small, starting with the change within ourselves, as well as asking questions of the institutions that we patronize and support. So thank you so much, Paul. I really enjoyed hearing more about your journey and your commitment to social justice in your personal, professional life, and most importantly, in the collection of art that you continue to cultivate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The material presented in this podcast has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. It is intended to be educational in nature. It is not an advertisement, nor is it a solicitation 
or an offer to buy or sell any financial instruments, or to participate in any particular trading strategy, nor should it be viewed as such by the listener. UBS AG or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. None of UBS or its representatives is suggesting that the recipient or any other person take a specific course of action or any other action at all in response to this podcast. By accessing and listening to this podcast, the listener acknowledges and agrees with the intended purpose described here and disclaims any expectation or belief that the information constitutes investment advice or a solicitation of any kind. Any financial instruments or services described in this podcast may not be eligible for sale in all jurisdictions or to certain categories or investors. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Incorporated offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review client relationship summary provided at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary or ask your UBS financial advisors for a copy.